Hi once again, and uh, welcome. This is uh, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. We call it Radio Free Acton, and we're glad that you are along with us today on the podcast. Uh, my name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast of the Acton Institute, and we have a good one for you today. We'll be talking with Daniel Garza. Daniel is the executive director of the Libre Initiative. He's a former congressional staffer and a White House advisor, and uh, he is working hard to bring the message of free markets and individual responsibility to the Latino community in the United States. And we had a good conversation with him. Paul Bonicelli, our director of programs here at Acton, joined me again in studio for that talk. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to highlight an event coming up here at our Mark Murray Auditorium. The Acton Lecture Series continues on Thursday, December 1st. And I just have to pause for a moment and just take in the fact that uh, December 1st is is not that far away. It's already December. Wow. Uh, Thursday, December 1st at noon, uh, right here at the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ilya Shapiro will be with us speaking on the topic of judicial abdication and the growth of government. Uh, Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor, editor-in-chief uh, of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He will be with us once again. Uh, Thursday, December 1st, uh, at noon, Judicial Abdication and the Growth of Government. You can register for that event online and check out our full events calendar, uh, and it is a full events calendar at acton.org slash events. Uh, now it is time to turn to our interview. Uh, Paul Bonicelli and I, uh, we're in studio speaking with Daniel Garza, and without further ado, let's get over to that interview here on Radio Free Acton. Well, we are pleased today on uh, Radio Free Acton to be joined by Daniel Garza, Executive Director of the Libre Initiative, uh, also former congressional staffer and White House advisor. And Daniel, first of all, uh, welcome. It's so good to have you here at the Acton Institute today. Thank you, sir. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. And I would be remiss if I failed to mention that sitting across the table from you is uh, our own Director of Programs here at Acton, Paul Bonicelli. Paul, how are you today? Great. Good to be with you. It's good to have you back. And uh, Daniel, I just, uh, first of all, obviously, uh, I can introduce you in a lot of ways, uh, Executive Director of the the Libre Initiative, uh, former Congressional staffer, former White House staffer, but I could also, and this is what kind of blows my mind, I could also introduce you as a uh, former migrant laborer and high school dropout. That's exactly right. And and, and the fact is, I, honestly, you could be. You, I, I think you're very. You have to be very proud of that because you you did make that jump and you did somehow go from that uh, a rather low start on the uh, on the uh, social ladder and you you rose all the way to the top. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you did that, starting off in Washington. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, first, let me preface it by saying that I don't recommend anybody drop out of high school to, to get to the White House. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, we'll highlight that. <laughs> okay. So, you know, my parents were, were, you know, when they came to America, um, they were farm workers in central, in the Central Valley of California where I was born. And uh, they, they um, picked grapes is what they did. And I was born in, in 68 um, as, to a family of farm workers. And I was a farm worker until I was 18 years of age. At 17, um, I got called into uh, the, my, the high school counselor's office, and she said, you know, kid, uh, I'm looking at your transcripts here, and it looks like a checkerboard. You're gone every other day, uh, and then you leave for three months to Mexico, and you cannot continue to do this. If you go back to Mexico this year, 
um, we're going to have to hold you back. And, I, and so I said, well, you know, I don't get to decide whether I go to work or not or whether I go to med school or not. She says, well, that, that, that's the condition. I said, well, what happens next year when, you know, uh, I have to go to med school again? Well, you're just going to have to keep repeating the 11th grade. Oh. Uh, that was my last day of school. Wow, that, that would be a hard thing to hear just from my experiences in 11th grade. Um, that would be, that's a hard year to repeat. But, but, but to, to just uh, to, to be faced with that circumstance where you, you are left with no other choice because you are tied to your parents and you have to travel. Um, but you, you eventually went and, and you said you got your GED and that kind of launched you off on a, a whole different path. Absolutely. You know, I had an uncle you know, who visited me uh, soon after he had found out that I had dropped out of high school and he, and he, he made me promise him that I would take the GED test you know, um, at the local college where, where they were uh, offering it and I, I promised him that I would just to get him off my back. <laughs> but what's, what's fascinating about that is that it was my second chance. It, it, it gave me a different direction in life and I became a reserve police officer and then a police officer at 21, uh, and that was my ticket out of the fields, honestly. And um, it was during my time as a police officer that I started seeing the domestic violence, the gang violence, the, the alcohol abuse. And 70% um, of the town was made up of Latinos, and they had no representation in, in the city council. And so I decided I was going to get involved because nobody else was. And that, that changed my life. Changed uh, changed a lot of lives too. Um, you you've uh, you've gone on and now you are the executive director of the Libre Initiative. And if you could just take give us a thumbnail sketch of what the initiative is and what what your goals are and yeah, that that the the organization is pursuing. Absolutely, it's an organization that was launched uh, back in June of 2011. It, we are a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan advocacy organization that uh, drives. Uh, the principles of economic freedom to the Latino community. And so we believe strongly in the merits of the free market and in limiting the size and the scope of government. We're now in 10 states with about 75 full-time staff and about 50 contracted workers and thousands and thousands of volunteers that we mobilize uh, to spread the message of the free market. So glad to have you here. Uh, this is um, about the third time we've been able to interact this way. And uh, I learn more each time. Um, I, I don't mean to uh, embarrass you, but I, I think about uh, the wonderful stories of success in America that come from faith and family and values, and I believe you represent that, and, and I'm just proud to know you. Um, I'd like to ask you about one of those, about faith. Could you talk about what, and you're a Christian, what your faith has meant uh, to your professional life, both in politics and government and anything else that you've done, does it have an, a bearing on your core beliefs about um, government and politics? Well, there's no question that my, uh, my faith uh, informs my decisions when it comes to public policy. I have a Christian worldview, and I'm proud to say that. I don't check my religion at the door when it comes to public policy. I don't check my faith at the door when it comes to driving policy either. Uh, I am very expressive about my faith. I am very convictioned about my faith. And I consider it, um, you know, my love for God as the, the most important relationship I have. And um, th there's no question that, that uh, uh, the, 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 the policies that, that I believe in have to be in alignment with Scripture. Um, and, but I also believe in freedom of religion and freedom of not believing, too. Um, you know, I think we have to respect each other and have civil conversations about policy that impacts societies. So I don't, you know, they say, well, you don't want to impose your religion. Well, w what are you imposing then? 
I, I, I am going to advocate for what I believe. And that a big part of that is my faith when it comes to pro-life issues, when it comes to marriage issues, when it comes to economic issues, when it comes to cultural issues. Faith informs everything I do and everything I believe in. You know, at the Acton Institute, the, the, there are many ways we can argue that the Judeo-Christian worldview, the principles of, of that uh, religion, um, influence what we do. But one of the most important one um, is that the Judeo-Christian faith says something very specific about who the human person is. And knowing you, I know this about you, but would you talk about what that means for your beliefs as well as how that plays out in the Libra Initiative's work? I believe that the reason we exist is to bring honor and glory to God. That is the fundamental reason of my life. Uh, and my life has to reflect the glory of God. And so I have to make decisions that, that honor Scripture, that, um, you know, that I think please God uh, before I do anything. And so uh, in my walk, uh, in my life, you know, I think as, as individuals, that means submission. That means that I, I, I am I humble before my God and ask him, you know, how can I glorify you today? And uh, look, if somebody chooses not to believe that, of course, that's their prerogative, you know, uh, but I will I will fight strongly, you know, for that liberty, you know, uh, of having even if that liberty was restricted, I, it wouldn't change me one bit, you know, and, and I would, you know, um, die you know for, for my faith and, and for my God and I think as human beings the the worth that we have is entirely drawn from the Creator you said something in our event today uh, that that's worth uh, repeating and, and it's the the notion that um, you know an, an individual human person is not to be a subject or a slave or a dependent on anybody else that's God's role only to to rule over his creatures and that has a profound impact on economic thinking any economic policy that treats human beings as things, as property, as secondarily important, it's going to be wrong. I don't care if the numbers work out on somebody's Excel sheet. It's not the right policy in, in public policy. And I think that's, that's what... Um, the I, absolutely. Is. I think, um, you know, all humans are created equal and created by God. And because we all have a net worth, uh, there is a, a thing... Uh, I value human autonomy, uh, the sovereignty of the individual... You know, I mentioned it, you know, with respect to immigration, but you're right, it, it, it does uh, cross over to all policy. So, for example, on immigration, uh, if we are going to drive policy, I strongly believe that you cannot take a person's sovereignty away in, 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 uh, when driving that kind of policy. So you cannot tie one person to one employer. You, you cannot, you know, uh, pass policy that rips the family apart, you know, of that individual that we should induce family cohesion, you know, that we should allow that person, you know, the ability to have circularity to go to and from the country of origin. Whether that's a worker bill or whether that's, you know, past citizenship, you know, for me, we must honor and uphold the, the sovereignty of the individual at all times. Yeah, I, I thought it was a great point, and, and I know you make it a lot. Um, there's a, there has to be a pragmatic approach to dealing with a big issue like immigration reform. But for principled people, there is always uh, a requirement that we understand who the human person is, who the creator is, and filter it through that way. It doesn't mean we immediately come to agreement, but that's the starting place for the conversation. I want to follow up on something, um, put you on the spot. Sure. Take on the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but like many Catholics do, and, and here's what I'm getting at. Um, the uh, Latino community in the United States around the world, 
is divided between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, there are both. Mm-hmm. Uh, this pope, um, uh, Pope Francis, speaks about economics and the market um, and capitalism um, in a way different from how Acton Institute Very sees it so. uh, and how our, our founding, uh, um, our founder, Father Sirico. Um, and there are lots of Latino, Spanish-speaking, because the Pope is from Argentina. He speaks Spanish. Lots of things he says in Spanish are not necessarily translated. What are your thoughts about the influence he's had on Spanish-speaking Americans and uh, their understanding of economics um, is that all bad if you're for the free market, or is there some silver lining there that we can know about that this is not necessarily going to be the only influence on Latinos in the United States? Yeah, so, you know, the one area where I find total agreement with the Pope on, and this is as an evangelical Christian, is in his heart to lift the poor. There's no question that we as a society must do what we can to help the vulnerable, to protect the poor, the widow, and the orphan. The Bible commands us to do that. And so I am absolutely in agreement with his heart on that one. Um, how we get there, I think, is, is where maybe the differences come in. Uh, look, uh, all I can do is just be informed by what I see in America. And the, ec- the, the free market economic system of America has done um, amazing things to lift the poor, to create the kind of wealth that allows us then to, to generate these kind of you know, um, public policies and, and social programs you know, that can help us directly lift the poor. At the same time, we have to empower the individual. And that means instead of redistributing somebody else's earned wealth to help somebody, we should redistribute knowledge and opportunity. Opportunity and knowledge is, is, is what the individual needs to move on and up. You know, to, to, have a, a, to be better positioned in the marketplace, to take full advantage of what the market has to offer by leveraging their skills and their talents. I believe in people. I believe in the talents of Latinos. I don't have you know, this soft bigotry of low expectations about them. You know, I, 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 they, they can thrive, but we have to have uh, public policies that allow them to thrive and I think uh, can help lift them. And I think a quality education is big and preserving our free market system um, like Milton Friedman said, there's nothing that can hold a candle to unleashing the forces of our free enterprise system. I have a number of uh, Latino friends, not as many as you probably. <laughs> I didn't grow up Latino. Uh, and I don't want this to sound like, you know, I have friends who are, sure. but, but I do. And, <laughs> and I talk to them and I've worked in public policy on these issues. I've worked with uh, people in the Hispanic world in, in uh, other countries as well as our own. And I haven't done any social science on it, but I find I am more likely to, to find a Latino who's offended at the notion that they should be on welfare or that they're owed something, um, just as much as I find them offended at the notion that they cannot be entrepreneurial, that they cannot be innovative, that they cannot look after their own interests. By no means does this mean there's no such thing as Latinos who want welfare and don't want to work. There are plenty of black and white, and everybody has those groups. Uh, Charles Murray's book has made it quite clear this is an equal opportunity problem uh, for the human person to, to be lazy or to, um, to expect somebody else to take care of them. But it seems to me there is a disproportionate number in the Latino community that are entrepreneurial, are eager to start businesses. The statistics show us this, how many do that. What do you think accounts for that? Is that overblown? Is that exaggerated? Um, and, and what's really at stake there? And how should that be reflected in our 
public policy? So I think uh, that the future or the destiny of a child begins at the home. Um, the the res- responsible parents, loving parents, you know, who can begin to nurture and develop the child at, is, is, I think, fundamental um, uh, to, to the, 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 the life of a child. And it begins at home. Now, there are, our public institutions are complementary to that. Uh, but there's no question, you know, that a lot of the wisdom, you know, that, that I learned, I learned from my parents, you know, and, and um, you know, so w- when I was invited to be a part of the White House, you know, to be part of the administration, I had two thoughts. And one of them was uh, euphoria. I, I'm going to work at the White House for the President of the United States. And that's, that's just an amazing achievement, you know, for someone of, you know, where I come from, a kid from the sticks. For anybody. <laughs> for anybody. The second one was fear. And I thought, Mike, you know, these, these kids, you know, they're from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you know, Dartmouth. What am I going to do at the policy table? You know, I'm just a humble kid, you know. And, and, you know, you learn very quickly, Paul, that wisdom doesn't reside exclusively in the five square miles of limestone and marble buildings of Washington, D.C. Wisdom comes from family, from your, your, your culture, from your, uh, your society. Wisdom comes mostly from the hand of God Almighty. And, and so the, you know, what I'm trying to say is in developing the child, you know, we have to take responsibility as ourselves and we have to look to each other, not always to a politician or a bureaucrat or some social program. So I think that's the number one mistake that we made. Second, you know, public policy should allow us to, to, to uh, position our child for success. And I believe strongly in things like school choice that empower the parents to send the kid to, you know, to, to their um, school of choice where they know they're going to be successful and that they are going to, um, you know, be, be filled with, you know, knowledge and, 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 uh, and wisdom that I think is going to help them, you know, achieve success. So I think what we're failing is um, that uh, the disintegration of the Latino family uh, is a major um, barrier right now for our children. You know, half of all Latino children are born out of wedlock. That is not a desirable condition. And it, what happens is that you set them up for living a life uh, of poverty, uh, getting involved in gangs, alcohol abuse, domestic violence. Uh, we know this because that's what the statistics bear out. Right. Uh, and they're going to be, more than not, high school dropouts, the ma- vast majority of, of kids who grow up in, you know, in a single-parent household. Uh, our public policy should induce family cohesion, not rip them apart. And that's exactly what we're doing. And that's, that's a, a terrible waste. You're listening to Radio Free Act, and we are uh, pleased to be joined today by Daniel Garza, Executive Director of the Libre Initiative and uh, former Congressional and White House staffer. And uh, Dan, I, I, I actually kind of want to follow up on Paul's question a little bit there. I have, I have two questions to round out the interview. The first one is a question of demographics. Um, we have heard one of one of the storylines, one of the narratives, I suppose you'd call it, uh, that's emerged in the last decade, is that of the emerging. Uh, let they they call it the the emerging democratic supermajority, the emerging democratic uh, demographic majority, where it is said that uh, young people tend to be more liberal, both socially and economically. They tend to be uh, a little bit more skeptical of the free market. And uh, what, one of the groups that's lumped into this, uh, this supposed supermajority is uh, typically Latinos. Uh, it, it is said that Latinos, you know, well, it, it's almost a given that they're going to vote with uh, a more liberal party, a Democratic party. Uh, frankly, one of, my, one of my real pet peeves is when an entire group of people simply based on race alone 
is is grouped in that way and assumed to be part of of one party or the other. I, I would assume you could say that's not uh, true. Latinos in the United States are not monolithic in their views. No, c- clearly not. Um, we are younger than everybody else, by the way. We're 27 years median age, while everybody else is like 10 years older than we are. So, but on age, on income, on education, on nationality, on language, uh, on how many generations you've been in America. You know, all these are differences within the Latino community that, that inform, you know, our vote too. Um, but look, you know, I talked about basically a two-tiered society where you have these folks who are now dependent on government and there's a large segmentation of that within the Latino community like there is in non-Latino communities. But then there's another part, you know, in, in that two-tiered system that are thriving. You know, the, who I, I mentioned that 15 million Latinos make over $50,000 a year. They have accessed the marketplace. They, they are now uh, beneficiaries of a strong quality education. Uh, they have positioned themselves and are leveraging their skills and their talents much better than their counterparts within the Latino community. So even on economics, there's huge difference. There, there are millennial Latinos who are doing very well because even though they believe, they, you know, they believe strongly on addressing inequality and on liberal issues, they practice um, capitalism. You know, they, they, they are very much about, you know, making profit and getting, you know, good high paying jobs, but also leveraging their comparative advantage. And they're doing quite well. You know, all we're saying is let's look at the policies that are generating prosperity, that are generating opportunity. And let's have an honest conversation about the policies that are generating poverty, that are generating uh, dependency on the government. Let's have an honest conversation about that. But that there is... Um, a complex diversity within the Latino community without question, without question. And as a final question, it would be podcast hosting malpractice on my part (laughs) if I didn't note that we're a week out from probably the most controversial uh, election, presidential election anyway, in American history, one of the craziest that we've ever seen. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is the president-elect of the United States, and Uh, Of course, immigration was a big part of his campaign, especially in the primaries uh, and and the problem of illegal immigration. The the basic question that I want to ask is what in the world just happened? (laughs) But I I guess I have to narrow it down. So what I what I want to ask you, having your expertise uh, in the Latino community, uh, what role did what role do you think the issue of immigration played in the election? Uh, what role do you think it played within the Latino community and their votes? Uh, just give us a little bit of, uh, of insight into how, uh, how the election turned out. I think on the issue of immigration, um, the, the, there are a lot of both parties and, and um, I think a lot of individuals who were running for certain positions didn't pick up um, where Americans were on the issue of immigration. They didn't pick up on the hurt. Pe- people were scraping their knees on this economy. And um, they were being hurt by uh, government programs like Obamacare, which was spiking the rate of premiums uh, that was, you know, the, the cost of the deductible, $7,000, when before it was like 500 bucks. Um, they, they had restricted doctor choice, clinic choice. But all the, 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 the Democrat or that this administration was talking about was, yeah, but there's more people on, on uh uh, on healthcare, uh, have healthcare More coverage than ever before, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, ignoring entirely what, 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 how much people were hurting because of the cost had gone so high that they were putting off healthcare. You know, what, what's the point of having health insurance if you can't use it to get healthcare because it's so expensive? Yes, exactly. They had yeah. shifted the cost of, of insurance from, from the insurer to the consumer. 
But but the Democrat Party wasn't picking up on that, just like they weren't picking up what people, what Americans were saying about their their angst about national security, their their fears about having a porous border. Um, it, basically, uh, they were they had an agenda and they were projecting that agenda onto the American people. And you don't do that, you know. I, heck, the Democrat candidate even attacked half of uh, Americans by calling them deplorables. Talk about tone deaf and then insulting. You know, it was like the, the it was a. Um, a double whammy. So I, I think what happened was that Americans responded to that indifference uh, and, and because they weren't addressing you know, what was happening and how it was impacting their lives. Do you have any idea of how uh, a President Trump is going to play in the Latino community? Can you just look in your crystal ball and, and see what do you what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I know one thing for sure is that um, Latinos like non-Latinos care about the economy, care about jobs and opportunity. And if a President Trump can create an environment where there is increased productivity in the private sector and more jobs are being created because of that, uh, they're going to love him. <laughs> they're going to love him, you know, like, like just like any other, you know, American, uh, obviously. A, a good so, economy will cover over a multitude you know, of sins. Goodness gracious, yes. yeah. So. Well, Daniel Garza, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here at the Acton Institute today. Uh, the Libre Initiative is online at thelibreinitiative.com. Com. Com. And, yes, I wanted and, to make sure I got that right. And belibre.org. Ah, shorter. And uh, and L I B R E initiative. Uh, and make sure you check That's it out. Exactly. It's a great organization, a great mission. And uh, Daniel, thank you for being with us. And Paul as well. My pleasure. Uh, Paul Bonicelli. My pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you both, and, and we wish you well. And there you have it. Uh, another edition of Radio Free Acton is, as they say, in the can. Uh, we want to thank once again uh, Daniel Garza of the Libre Initiative. Uh, it's been great to have him here at Acton today participating in the Acton Lecture Series. And uh, it was fantastic to have him here on Radio Free Acton. Great guy and a great organization. The Libre Initiative, you can find him online at thelibreinitiative.com, L-I-B-R-E. Or you can find them uh, at the shorter website address, belibre.org. Belibre.org, B-E-L-I-B-R-E.org. Great organization, well worth your time and your support. And uh, again, thanks to Daniel Garza for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. Another thank you uh, to Paul Bonicelli as well, our director of programs here at the Acton Institute. He's a fine gentleman, and uh, we do appreciate him taking his time to come down and join us for interviews. And speaking of joining us for interviews, we want to thank you as well. It's uh, great to have you come along and uh, listen to the podcast. We hope that if you enjoy it, you'll spread it around to others who may find some value in it. And of course, uh, check out our blog as well, the Acton Institute Power Blog at blog.acton.org. News, information, and commentary on a daily basis, uh, all week long, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, at uh, the from the Acton Institute, uh, blog.acton.org. All that uh, good stuff there for you to, uh, to partake of and uh, a great comment section to participate in as well, if you so desire. Uh, with that, we're going to wrap this edition of Radio Free Acton up. Once again, thanks for joining us. Uh, we will be back again with more editions of the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty in the future. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Have a great day.